You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. Having the drive to achieve something is one thing, but what happens if things don't go to plan? While she's kicked some major goals in her career, it hasn't always been easy for food entrepreneur Chelsea Ford. She's changed industries, got burnout because of long hours, and even packed it all in to live in Peru with a shaman. But these experiences were the catalyst for Chelsea to identify a need within the food industry to support and encourage female business owners to achieve their goals too. In this episode, Chelsea explains what's required to start a food business that's set up to succeed. Chelsea Ford, we've just spoken in our first episode about how you were so driven, you knew what you wanted to achieve, and ultimately you've got there, but I'm tipping some things haven't gone right. Can you explain to me if that's the case and how you dealt with it? Lots of things haven't gone right. And I would say that the big thing for me that I do is that I back myself. Doesn't mean that I'm 100% confident 100% of the time. Absolutely not. And, you know, are there times that I've cried and not really known how to get myself into or out of a situation that I haven't wanted to be in? Absolutely there has. But you know, I think it's pragmatism over drama. I do my best at stepping away and looking at, well, how, how can I do it? So I didn't get into the university I necessarily wanted to go to and I didn't have a great time at university, but I'm one of those people that makes the most of every opportunity and at university I did Japanese and then I worked in a hotel in Japan in Fukuoka and it was it was a boring job. I was the concierge, you know, the person at the front that said welcome countless times a day. The uniforms were very strict as they should be and are in in five-star hotel environments, you know, and just um, saying in Japanese every day, welcome, 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 welcome. (laughs) You know, that was advantageous. uh, The fact that I was able to incorporate that into my career in hospitality and and F&B. On the surface, it's immaculate as you know, but I'd imagine behind the scenes, a lot goes into it just to get it right. Can you talk me through a a normal day for you in that environment? What happens? When do you start? Um, What's the process? And and when does it all end for for your going home? Yes. And it's interesting that you talk about that gloss at the front, because actually my experience behind the scenes in the most of the hotels that I worked in is that they're they're quite messy behind the scenes. And, you know, the staff quarters aren't necessarily very nice, you know, and I guess you wouldn't expect they'd be super slick cafe style, but they're also often in the the dungeons or, you know, um, cold, dark, no light. I mean, I remember when I had one particular job at the Hyatt back in Sydney and I started at 6am and when I got into work having to put full face of makeup and do the hair and my uniform on and be shiny and sparkly and friendly. Did that start to tarnish the industry for you? Because, you know, if we talk about, as we did in our first episode, you you knew what you wanted to do and you knew it was achievement and you wanted to get there. And when you finally did and you're seeing it from the other side, did it change for you a little bit? What changed it for me was the lack of women in the kitchen and the machoism or machismo of the culture, thinking 
is this the kind of life that I want? As a, this is early 90s feminist, how is this going to work for me? I couldn't see anybody like me and I was very concerned about that. And so, yes, partially the hours, but it was more the presence of senior women in that kind of environment that turned me off. So what did you do then? Did you look at it and think, okay, well, that's just what I've got to deal with or did you change course? I did start to work for what they called at the time worldwide reservations for that chain. So I began office hours and I was coordinating the loyalty program under the tutelage of a really, really great guy. And so A, I had more normal hours or office hours and B, I think I wore my own clothes, it was no longer a uniform and that was, on some levels, that's easier, strangely, maybe not, but it was good for me at the time and it just meant that I could have uh, more normal interactions with my friends uh, because I wasn't working those crazy hours and being the only one that would ever do it because, you know, so much of my drivenness has meant and actually still means today that I'm often the one working and... Um, having to give up certain things when other people aren't. You've obviously gone on to have a corporate career with Spotless Group, Nestle, Kellogg's, Dyson. There's some big names there, some amazing opportunities. You've obviously arrived at a point, though, where you've said, enough of that, I'm going out on my own, I want to be a business coach. Talk me through that process for you. How did you get to that point where you decided the opportunity was right for you to go and do your own thing. My values stopped aligning with those big food and drink and other consumer goods enterprises and I was sick of it. I had a really lovely looking life on some levels on the outside. I earned a really good wage. I had this fantastic wardrobe. I had a nice designer car, you know, money in the bank. Uh, But I was like, there's just got to be more to life than this. And I was working for one particular consumer goods enterprise, um, an inordinate amount of hours. And on some levels, it looked really great on my CV because I had a massive budget that I was responsible for and a lot of people uh, that I was responsible for. But it wasn't the culture. I was tired of the lack of innovation. I was sick of products being full of plastic I packed everything up and I actually moved to Peru and lived with a shaman. And what was that like? It was really uh, interesting insofar as for the first time in my life I didn't have any real responsibility and that was interesting and fantastic because I am an interested cook. Um, I lived an hour away from a major town and I just used to go into the local markets where all the people from the, the hills and the mountains came to and mostly I just got very adept at cooking with tomatoes and onions. Yeah, so look, fascinating, totally different topography to where I'd come from and different weather and different people and different practices. Uh, But it was a, a mile away really from anything that I had previously done and it just gave me time to reflect on really what I wanted. And that's when, you know, I came back to Australia and I did my master's in applied social science, which included uh, coaching. I guess it was then that I started to see that I had all this commercial prowess and confidence and I loved business and I loved the food and drink industry. And so I decided to uh, marry the two of like, you know, the commercial insight and prowess that I had with 
F&B and take it back to other people in the mid-market and help them. Business coaches, consultants, they go into business because they genuinely want to help and they think they can help. So for you, you knew you wanted to go down that path. Where did you think you wanted to focus though? Who did you think you could help? I thought I could help mid-tier food manufacturers make more money. That's a, a big statement and I'm sure it's true, but if you break that down, what do you then come in and do? A lot of the time it, I got feedback that it was like couples therapy because often it was two leaders, whether or not they were life partners. Um, sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. So I actually found that a lot of the time my time was spent in working out what I call the demarcation of duties, like who exactly is responsible for what and maintaining and ensuring that they're accountable to do what they say they're going to do. Because the problem that I often saw was someone would assume, it's the same in personal relationships often, you know, someone assumes, well, you're going to take the garbage out. Well, no, that's your job and we've already agreed to that and you'll take it out on Tuesdays and Fridays, for example. So same thing in business, you know, so you're the one that's making the sales calls. Excellent. You're doing that on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. And the revenue we're going for is X thousand. So you need to do X number of sales calls and the buck stops with you for that. So a lot of my time was spent, I guess, having those accountability conversations and keeping people honest um, and accountable. Uh, And also what people tend to do in small and medium enterprises is that they say they want a certain outcome, but their behaviours and their focal point is on something totally different. So they'll say that they want to sell to a a major grocery chain, but then they'll be spending their time door knocking cafes. And it's like, okay, there's nothing wrong with door knocking cafes, but if that's what you want, well, then let's look at that strategy. But really, you told me that you wanted to sell to a major grocer. Let's plot that pathway. So it's kind of keeping people helping them have visibility on their business, you know, seeing what they can't see. In terms of what you do, you've got um, females in food, which I think is a fantastic idea. Why did you then look at it and think, okay, there's a real opportunity for you in this space? The reason I took it and ran with it and thought it was a fantastic idea from the get-go is because the biggest amount of new businesses are begun by women and often because they have this problem that they can't solve elsewhere. Like about 41% of women started businesses are started because they're trying to solve a problem very personal to them. So their own gluten intolerance or their child's nut allergies. And so they can't see a product or a service solution for them. So they go and start the business themselves. But generally speaking, they have this passion um, for the product, but they don't do any market assessment. They might just say to their inner circle of 150 people at most, oh, what do you think about, you know, this particular product? Yes, everybody's in agreement. And so then they start a business. Whereas where I come from, because of my deep F&B and commercial training and experience, I'll come at it with a business framework to help them grow and scale it. I would imagine you were achieving great things for the people you're working with, but there also has to be that element of your no doubt getting something from them in return. They're teaching you things. They're opening you up to new experiences. Can you explain that to me at all? Is there anything like that, that that's happened for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the richness that I get, particularly for those that 
apply themselves. I think it's probably like any teacher-student relationship uh, and you see the struggles that, you know, my coachees or mentees go through and it's, it's incredibly rewarding to support them and help them materialise their vision. And, you know, what I get from them is a huge amount of personal and professional satisfaction. And I get to be not quite at the coalface because I'm not in production with them and some of them are using co-manufacturers and some of them manufacture in-house. But innovation is with the small guys or the small gals. That's another reason why I left the big guys and gals because their innovation pipelines was just sort of flavour rotations. It wasn't true innovation. And true innovation really is happening at the small end of town and it's extraordinarily exciting what I get to see. I can imagine it would be. I mean, you're dealing daily with uh, young, exciting entrepreneurs. In your mind, what makes a great entrepreneur? Uh, They definitely need to back themselves. Uh, They need to be around people. They can't live in a vacuum. I've heard this saying of you have to be the dumbest person in the room and I sort of agree half with that. What I think makes a great entrepreneur is that you've got to be coachable. You know, if you know it all, you're probably not going to go very far. And frankly, I see that from time to time when people have, for whatever reason, they have blind spots that they're just determined to not let go of. And so for me, a great entrepreneur is being incredibly open all the time. But going back to that shiny new ball syndrome, I also believe that to be very clear on the vision. Now, a lot of entrepreneurial pursuits will fail they might fail ultimately or they might fail along the way, but that's fantastic. And I and I think in Australia we need to really embrace the virtues of misfires and failure because it's just so fantastic to learn from that and then reiterate. It's all about iteration. Hindsight is a wonderful thing and no doubt you've developed a lot of it over the years. What would you like to say to the students coming through who want a career in, say, hospitality? What's the message you'd like to leave with them? Just really back themselves early. You can't put an old head on new shoulders, but so often I think many people, myself included, look back and realise how great and lovely and beautiful we were own it in the moment, even though, you you know, it might not necessarily feel that way, but just believe that you can do it. Try and encourage yourself to lean into opportunities and know that you're worth it. That's a wonderful message. Thank you very much, Chelsea Ford, for sitting down and having a chat. Thanks, Luke. It's been brilliant to talk with you. Remember this statement from Chelsea. Embrace the virtues of misfires and failures because that's how you learn. If that's your attitude, you're destined to succeed in your career. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production.